Amen. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you with humble hearts that have been humbled before you according to your word. God, we've been humbled because of an awareness of our sin, and we've also been humbled because of the grace that you have extended to forgive us of our sin. And God, this morning I pray that as we approach your word, that you would help us to see clearly how we are to live in light of this humbling. God, we recognize that you are a holy God who is other than us because of your righteous perfection. And yet, God, it is in your righteous perfection that you condescended your love to us and showed great mercy through the sinless life of Jesus, who is our Savior. God, this morning we ask that you would help us to live lives that reflect the glory of our Savior Jesus. We recognize, Father, that we are people who have been saved from sin, but people who continue to struggle with sin. And this morning, we beg of you that you would help us to continue to fight against our sin and to continue to strive after the things of Christ. And God, we pray that even as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that they would put off the old self and put on the new self, that we would be people characterized by the new self, people that are characterized by the holiness and righteousness of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us to become more and more like our Savior and that you would continue to make yourself known through us and that you would bring more and more glory to yourself through us. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking in the middle of this chapter, but really chapter divisions are not always helpful because they can be misleading. And it's in these verses, beginning in verse number 17, that the Apostle Paul shifts from his discussion of the doctrine of all that we have in Christ and commends the Ephesians to live in light of their new identity in Christ. He reminds the Ephesians that they are no longer Gentiles who live separated from God, but they are now the people of God. And that was really what was being said in the beginning of the chapter, as Jerry has taught us, that there is unity and diversity in the body of Christ. But now the apostle is turning to remind and show the Ephesians that their lives must reflect the character of Christ, their Savior. In fact, I would argue that all life apart from God as a non-Christian follows a consistent downward spiral from life to death, and a sinful heart can never be satisfied. In fact, a sin-filled heart constantly lusts for more with an insatiable appetite that can never be satisfied. And that downward spiral of sin moves from indulgence to a life of recklessness that is out of control, harming both ourselves and others. We see this downward spiral laid out in the passage that Akeem just read for us, specifically in verses 17 to 19, as the Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers of their former way of life. He says that they were once people that had hard hearts, that were darkened and dead to their sin, and hearts that were reckless in their pursuit of sin. 
In other words, they had an inability and an unwillingness to respond to the truth of God. There was an absence of spiritual understanding in their hearts and lives. And they had seared consciences that called good evil and evil good. And that resulted in an unrestrained abandonment to their sin. Yet God in his grace had intervened, and we saw that at the beginning of chapter 2, in the first five verses, where those who were dead in their trespasses and sin have been made alive in Christ by his mercy and by his grace. We also see this illustrated in the Old Testament, specifically through the Egyptian Pharaoh. The people of God, the Israelites, were in bondage to the nation of Egypt as slaves. They were indentured servants who were performing whatever the Pharaoh would have for them, and specifically hard labor to build some of the things that we still recognize today from the Egyptian period, such as pyramids. Well, in the midst of this, God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and commanded this wicked Egyptian ruler to release his enslaved Hebrew people. But Pharaoh, in his sinful arrogance, refused to heed what Moses and Aaron had said. He refused to acknowledge the true meaning of the ten plagues that were sent against Egypt. At first, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. But ultimately, it goes on to say that God hardened his heart against Pharaoh. Pharaoh was unable and unwilling to respond to God's message through Moses and Aaron. And Pharaoh had no spiritual understanding about the plagues, the Passover, or the people of God. Pharaoh had seared his conscience and recklessly pursued whatever he desired, including pursuing the Israelites after he finally released them against his better wishes. And then ultimately, Pharaoh violently followed his passions into the bottom of the Red Sea, where he was swept away with the rest of his soldiers. You see, apart from the saving grace of God, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our natural sinful way of life follows sin to its logical conclusion, which is death, judgment, and separation from God. Yet Paul, in this passage, outlines a different way for Christians to live, and that's what I want us to focus on this morning, the different way to live and the results of that. As we look in these verses, if we were looking in the original language, we'd see that these two paragraphs in your English Bible are simply two sentences in Greek. But for us as English speakers, those would feel like really, really long sentences. So we're not going to approach it that way. But I do want you to see that there are two primary points that Paul is communicating in this section. And the first is in 17 through 19 that God completely transforms the way that we live. The death spiral that Pharaoh and others are on apart from God is broken by the grace of God. And then the second thing that I'm going to show you this morning in verses 20 to 24 is that our way of life as Christians must reflect the character of Christ. Our way of life as Christians must reflect the character of Christ. That is, God not only saves us from our sins, but he saves us unto a life that reflects our Savior. So there's the 
four or five minute version of my sermon, but I've prepared a little bit more for us to consider as we walk through these verses. You see, the first thing here is God completely transforms our way of life is Paul is writing to believers whom he loves to challenge them to persevere in the faith that they profess. Look at verse 17. He says, so I tell you this and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. As Paul is writing, he is pleading with these believers that are good friends of his, people that he has spent years living with them, alongside them, and ministering with them and caring for them, speaking the truth of Christ and the gospel into their lives. And he's saying, I implore you with this, I insist. And I do it not simply as a friend to a friend, but I implore you on the, in the name of our Lord Jesus that you would listen to what I am about to ask you to do. And what is that? He is about to ask them to no longer live in the old patterns of sin that they once did. He says here specifically, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Paul wants to help the Ephesians and help us understand that God transforms our thoughts. God transforms our thoughts. This is the first way that he begins to change our life and our way of living. The, Gentile, or the Ephesians were Gentile believers whom God had transformed with the gospel of grace. And we have saw in previous chapters, specifically in chapter 2 and chapter 3, how God brought Gentiles and Jews together as the one people of God. And this went against cultural expectations. It went against the patterns that they had grown up with. And yet now Gentiles were believing in a Jewish Messiah because he was the Messiah of all people who would believe in him. And Paul is reminding these dear brothers and these dear sisters that they have been changed by this gospel message and that they now must live in light of this gospel message, not as they once did apart from Christ, but now in accordance with the truth of Christ. The word translated futility here simply means meaningless, useless, worthless, or emptiness. And the futility of their thinking means everything they did apart from Christ was vain, was empty, and had no purpose. Now that sounds harsh to say, are you suggesting that people who don't know Jesus have meaningless lives? Well, we can certainly enjoy the good benefits of life on earth. We can have health. We can have wealth, we can have family, we can have good jobs and homes to live in. But everything apart from Christ, the author of Ecclesiastes says, is meaningless. And it is futile. There is nothing to it in the end. Life without God is meaningless because true life is only found in God. Life without God is meaningless because true life is only found in God in God. That's what Paul is writing to remind these believers, that unbelievers, it's not that they're incapable of enjoying life, but it's that they're incapable of thinking their way to God and finding their way to eternity, because only the gospel transforms us and changes us. Only the gospel renews our minds. Paul wrote of this in Romans chapter 1 as well, where he talked about 
what it is that people are doing apart from God. And he says this in Romans 1.28. He said, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. There Paul is writing about those who do not believe God and have rejected him. And he has said that they have rejected a knowledge of God because even the heavens are declaring the glory of God the psalmist says in Psalm 96. And in their rejection, it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. That's an incredible commentary, not only on the Roman culture that Paul was writing to, and not only on the Ephesians, as they saw the same thing, but it's also an incredible commentary on our own day and time. The more rich and affluent we become as a people and as a nation, the farther and farther we get from God and the more and more our culture unravels. It's a sobering thing that even with all the niceties of an affluent life, that there are still the same heart problems that have been there all along. And Paul is saying, don't return to those broken ways of thinking. And those wrong ways of thinking that lead to a dead end, but instead look to God. Paul also wrote to the Corinthians similarly when he said, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, apart from the gospel of Jesus, But unbelievers simply cannot see or hear the message of Christ because it has been withheld from them. As we pursue Christ, a mature understanding of Christian doctrine means that a Christian cannot live like Gentiles who do not know God and who do not think about God. The Gentiles' thinking is not informed by Scripture and their way of life is not focused on God. Therefore, a Christian must be God-centered or theocentric, to use a theological term. God must be at the center of our lives, informed by his word and guided by his spirit. In fact, the word of God is what should shape the way Christians understand our lives. And the word of God is what informs our worldview in every way. The gospel renews our minds, Paul says in Romans 12, and it changes our lives. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that God transforms our thoughts, that the way we think will affect the way that we live. The way we think will and does affect the way that we live. Previously, I've mentioned a book by Mike Cosper that I would commend to you to read. It's called The Stories We Tell. And Cosper in that book is explaining how TV movies and entertainment affect us and affect the way we think and the way that we live. One of the stories that Cosper retells in that is how he as a pastor was offering counseling to one of the young men in his church. This young man had finally gotten to the point where he was fed up with his sin and he needed help and input from someone else. So he approached counseling and Cosper was meeting with him to help him deal with a sin that just seemed to have a grip on this young man's heart and life. This young man, to be specific, 
was ensnared in lust. He was given over to pornography. He could not stop himself. And what scared him is that it had moved from just simply looking at images to acting these things out in his life. And it was beginning to bother him. So he came to Cosper, and on more than one occasion, Cosper listened to him, responded to him, and tried to help him as best he could. And he provided resources, accountability, and relationship that would steer this young man away from his worst lusts and hopefully to a life of purity in Christ. At the end of one of their sessions, Cosper recounts that they had, it seemed like to him, made incredible progress with this young man's sin and his struggle. And as the young man stood to end the session and to leave for the day, he just offhandedly said to Mike Cosper, he said, hey, are you going to go with, out this weekend and see such and such movie? Would you like to come with me and some of the guys as we go watch it? And Cosper said it hit him like a bolt of lightning that this young man's problem was not accountability, it was not resources, and it was not relationships. It was the inputs into his heart and mind. Because the movie that he was just offhandedly inviting Cosper to see had a reputation for being one of the most vile movies that was out at the time. And Cosper said to the man, I'm not going to go see that movie. And I would encourage you not to go see that movie either because it undermines the very things that we've been working on in, the, in our counseling and that we're trying to help you in overcoming your lust. You see, what that young man had failed to realize is that his thoughts were as futile as the Gentiles. The things that he was feeding into his heart and into his mind through his entertainment, as thoughtlessly as it seemed to him, was actually affecting the very core of his being because it was coming out in worse and worse degrees of lust. All of that to say, Cosper, like Paul, pointed this young man to Christ and said, stop doing that. Instead, fill your heart and mind with the pure things of God, with God's truth, with God's righteousness and God's holiness. It is only in thinking the right thoughts that we will live the right way. We must develop godly thinking that cultivates discernment and produces a godly lifestyle. While God first wants to transform our thoughts, he also wants to transform our hearts. Look at verse number 18. Before the Ephesians were believers, it says they were darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The Gentile way of thinking was darkened. It was limited. It was dimmed by their sin-filled minds. They lacked a true understanding because they lived apart from God. And it says here they lived there out of ignorance. But this ignorance wasn't merely an information problem with a knowledge gap that could be closed. Instead, their minds were blind and their hearts were ignorant because of hard hearts. That is because their hearts were dominated and controlled by sin. They were dead, Paul wrote earlier in their trespasses and sin, unable to save themselves. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1 again. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. 
but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. There is much that could be said from that passage, but what I want you to hear is he says they claimed to be wise, and yet they were foolish. You see, even our own time, as people are darkened in their understanding, separated from God, from ignorance and the hardening of their hearts, they may look very intellectual, very sophisticated, and well-learned. And yet, the same applies to them, that they exchanged the glory of the immortal and made it to look like the mortal. Someone once said, God created us in his own image, and in our sin, we return the favor. Think about that for a moment, that in our sin, we've recast God in our image. In Romans, it says that they cast him as a mortal human or as birds, animals, and reptiles. We may not be like that. We may say, well, that's people in third world countries or people that have witch doctors and worship at totem poles and other strange things. And yet we've made God in our image with all of our devices, trying to recast the knowledge and intelligence of God through the information of, and technology age. We've tried to recast God in the mode of convenience and the luxurious ways that we live. There are all kinds of ways that we have darkened hearts that are separated from God in ignorance simply because our hearts are hard. Only the gospel can illuminate our hearts and show us the righteousness of God. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God and it is the righteous who live by faith. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our family, our friends, and acquaintances, we must pray that God would make himself known to them. They need more than information or knowledge about God, though they do need to understand what God says about himself in his word. But they also need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit so they can acknowledge their sin and believe the gospel so that God would give them light, that he would give them closeness and a relationship, and that he would give them knowledge that leads to understanding, and that he would soften their hearts, taking their stony hearts and giving them hearts of flesh. As we share the gospel, we should share boldly, knowing that God wants to chip away at people's minds and at their hearts. But Paul also shows us that the way the gospel transforms us is finally in our behavior. Look at verse number 19. He says, Having lost all sensitivity, they, the pagan Gentiles, had given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. This is referring, of course, to how a person acts and what a person chooses to do. Klein Snodgrass, which I just enjoy saying that guy's name, Klein Snodgrass, if you want to look it up, has said this. He said, the human mind is twisted by an idolatrous self-interest. The human mind is twisted by an idolatrous self-interest. And that idolatrous self-interest works its way out in the way that we live apart from Christ. 
He says here, having lost all sensitivity. In other words, there's no conviction in their conscience. There's no awareness of sin because their consciences have been seared. This also means that they have given themselves over to uncontrolled sensuality. In other words, shameless in their corrupt pleasures, feeling no guilt any longer for some of the things that they do. And this in turn leads to widespread impurity, or he says here, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. This widespread impurity means lawless immorality, where anything goes, or as you're learning in the judges' discipleship class, everyone does what was right in their own eyes. Who are you to challenge me with your morality or your made-up God, we may hear people say. Another example of all kinds of impurity. And this leads finally in the death spiral of sin to compulsive greed. It says they are full of greed, all-consuming appetites that can never be satisfied with sin. In fact, the curse of sin is more sin because you can never get enough of it. Just like the young man that came to Mike Cosper and said, I'm scared because my lust has moved from simply looking at images to now acting it out. What do I do? His flesh would have told him to do more of that, to take those actions farther, to be true to himself, to live out his identity as someone who enjoys sexual pleasures. And yet that very impulse, that greed, that covetousness for more of that was killing the young man. And we can all think of examples in our own harder life where we had a pet sin or something that we thought, it'll be okay. Nobody needs to know about this. It's just one of those things. It's just my weakness or my Achilles heel or where I slip up from time to time. And yet the truth is that little thing always grows to become a big thing. And it grows to dominate our hearts and our minds, and our lives. We see in these verses a progression from thinking to feeling to doing. And it always works that way that how we think affects how we live. Yet sadly, too many times Christians have focused on behaviors and said, well, to be a good Christian, you need to do this, and then eventually you'll feel better about it, and maybe you'll learn how to think right thoughts about it. Now, it is an oversimplification and to say that that's just always wrong because there are nuances and layers of things as we approach maturing in Christ. But I do think that what Paul is saying fundamentally is we need to learn to think Christ's thoughts after him. And as we do that, it will affect our feelings, which in turn will change what we do. That's a countercultural message. The futility of the Gentiles is to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter what you put in your mind. It doesn't matter how you feel. As long as you can perform and get the paycheck, as long as you can perform and raise your children, as long as you can perform and be the nicest guy in your neighborhood. And yet all of those messages are futile. They're empty. They're meaningless and purposeless. Paul shows the Ephesians what their true purpose was. And we'll see that in verses 20 to 24, that their true purpose is to live a life that reflects the character of Christ. But before I move there, I want to ask a few questions. 
Why do we read books and blogs, listen to podcasts and music, watch television or movies, and admire people who indulge in idolatrous deeds of darkness that lead to death? Why do we fill our hearts and minds with what Paul calls rubbish elsewhere, which that's the British way of saying it, fill our minds with garbage from the sewer pit of hell? And then we wonder why we're powerless in our walk with Jesus. We wonder why we struggle to share our faith. And we wonder why sin grips us as tightly as it does. It's because like that young man who visited Mike Cosper, on the one hand, we want relief from our sin. We want help. And yet on the other hand, we thoughtlessly get up from the counseling seat and say, you want to join me for that movie? Hey, are you listening to that podcast? Hey, what do you think of the newest album by so-and-so? Or the newest track on Spotify? And all of those things are undermining us. I had a friend when I was in college who gave himself over more than once to violent behavior. And by violent behavior, I don't just mean that this guy was a bully who liked to pick fights. I just mean this guy was a train wreck. He was out of control physically in the harm that he could do to others. And it was scary to watch. And by God's grace, even though I was his friend, he never turned his violence on me. But I had an opportunity once in talking to him. I said, what is behind this behavior? Why are you acting this way? And he just sort of mused. We talked about a lot of things. And then offhanded, he said, well, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but my dad and I, ever since I've been a little kid, we love watching a certain kind of movie. And he described these movies to me. They were very violent kinds of movies with very aggressive behavior, even immoral acts of behavior. And he said, and we've watched those for as long as I can remember. And the rating didn't matter as long as it told a good story. That's what my dad and I were into. And I thought for a moment, and this must have been the spirit of God because I'm really not this smart. But I said to him, I said, well, do you think that has any impact on the way you're acting out and the kinds of trouble that you're getting in in your life? And he said, no, I don't think there's any connection to that at all. And I said to him, I said, well, what if I justified to you that I had a problem with lust and it's because I enjoyed watching pornography? Now, that's not true. I was saying it hypothetically. But I said to him, what if I said my dad and I, for as long as I can remember, have been watching these kinds of movies and these kinds of images? And I just can't help it. I mean, it's just who I am and how I was raised. My friend almost became violent on me at that point. He said, that's not right. That would be wrong if you did that. And then this is where the Spirit of God came in. I said to him, I said, brother, I said, which commandment is worse? Do not murder or do not commit adultery. And it changed the conversation. It pierced him to the heart. And he said, I see your point. I see your point. The point is, the way we think affects the way we feel, which affects our behavior. And we must turn our lives over to Christ. And Christ will completely transform the way we live. And that leads to the second point this morning, and that is that our way of life as Christians must reflect the character of Christ. Our way of life as Christians must reflect Christ's character. 
So how do we do this? It says in verse number 20, that, however, is not the way you have learned. Paul is saying, in spite of the darkness that I've just painted for you and the death spiral of sin, let me show you the way of life that you've been taught in Jesus and the gospel, the way here he says you have learned. This is, again, they did have to have the requisite knowledge of God and the gospel as presented in the word of God. But it was more than just an information dump. It was transformation. This learning here was not simply sitting in a classroom and dutifully taking a test and getting all the multiple choice answers correct. But this was the Apostle Paul spending over three years of his life alongside these brothers and sisters speaking the truth of Christ and showing them the truth of Christ in his life and speaking the truth of Christ into their life as he modeled Christ-likeness for him or for them. You see, as we reflect the character of Christ, we must reflect Christ's truth. He says in verse number 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The Gentile Ephesians who were once dead in their sins had learned the way of Jesus and his mercy and grace towards sinners like them. Again, back in chapter two, it says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The truth that the Gentiles needed to hear over and over again was that Jesus saves by his glorious grace. Brandon even said it, we're not saved halfway or partway and God leaves a little more for us to do. He saves us completely and entirely. And this was the truth that the Ephesian believers need to hold on to. The word of God is what renews our minds according to the truth that is in Jesus, and it transforms every part of our lives. Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As our minds understand the truth of God's word, the spirit of God steadily transforms our thoughts, and this transforms the way we feel and the way we live. It's been said Physically, we are what we eat. And for some of us, that's kind of scary to think about. Well, think of it this way, spiritually. Spiritually, we are what we think. We are what we think. Christians must make it a priority to spend time meditating on the truth of God's word and communing with God in prayer and learning more of Christ. We must get to know Christ more and more every day. And forgive us for those times when we're bored. And we say, I already know everything the preacher's going to say. I already know every lesson that they could possibly teach me in any class at that church. I've heard every passage and every illustration and every story. No one says that, but we sometimes think that way. But what Paul is saying is what we have heard about Christ and we're taught in him is truth that we can never exhaust It's truth that we can continue to learn and continue to pursue and that will change us as we learn it and pursue it. Well, reflecting Christ means that we will not only reflect his truth, but secondly, our way of life must reflect Christ's integrity. We must reflect Christ's integrity and deny our deceitful desires. Look at verse 22. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, 
to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Paul had taught the Ephesians about their sin and their need for the gospel. And the good news involved not only knowing Jesus, but it also involved receiving a new identity in Jesus. And this new identity was something that they were to live in light of because the gospel was transforming their lives. You see, they were once people dead in their sins, deserving of God's wrath, but now they were called the sons and daughters of God who have one spirit, one father, one Lord, one hope, one faith that we saw at the beginning of this chapter. This diverse group of Gentiles has been brought together alongside believing Jews to be the one church of Christ. What an incredible thing. And Paul was saying, remember I taught you, put off the old way of living. Put off your old self because it is being corrupted. Paul is acknowledging that the Christian lives in a constant tension between sin and sanctification. Even the, the realization that we're in that tension causes us angst sometimes. A lot of pastoral counseling boils down to that tension where people say, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian because I'm struggling with this and I keep struggling with that. And I often say to people, the fact that you recognize that's a struggle is hope. Because if you were apart from Christ, there would be no struggle. You would just give yourself over to your sin without restraint, as Paul said earlier in this passage, indulging every kind of impurity and being full of greed. And yet the fact that God, by his spirit, challenges you to stop and, ask, and prompts you to go ask for help shows that there is hope that you can put off those deceitful desires. There's much more that I could be said here, but I want you to think about this. Without much thought or effort, we take our cues for the way we live from the culture around us. Think about that. Without much thought or effort, we take our cues for the way we live from the culture around us. Have you ever noticed how people who hang out together start talking alike? They laugh at the same jokes. They even like the same things. Perhaps that drew them together in the first place, but it only gets magnified over time. All of those things are happening subtly, reinforcing both good and bad. And what Paul is saying as a believer is that we need to put off the old way we used to live apart from God. And we need to put on, in verses 23 and 24, the right way to live before God. You see, not only does what we think affect the way we live, but who we hang out with affects the way we live as well. So we should be cautious and careful. That's one of the reasons the local church is so important and instrumental in the life of a believer. That this is a place that God uses to strengthen our faith with the support and help of other brothers and sisters. So as we live reflecting Christ's truth, we should also reflect his integrity, which means we should live honestly before God and one another. Honest in our struggle with sin and honest in our desire to push back against the sin and lean into our new self, our new way of living. Paul says it in verse 23. He says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The idea here is that we must cultivate righteousness and holiness. 
They're not simply automatic because we prayed a prayer or because we've come to church. But the pursuit of righteousness and holiness are an active engagement. Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not because you're scared you won't be saved, but because of your reverence for God and your desire to bring glory to him. The gospel is making us new and changing the way we think and how we feel about it and what we do. Paul says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice there, Paul calls it the transforming and renewing of our mind. This is the power of the gospel. So what we are is a lot related to what we think. Have you ever met someone who is a Debbie Downer? Who it just seems like every conversation goes from good to bad, and it turns there rather quickly. Or if you're not familiar with Debbie Downer, think of the Muppet critics who used to sit in the balcony of the Muppet presentations. After every Muppet presentation, they would get up there and say, that was a great show. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it was okay. And then before long, it was the worst show on earth. Get them off the stage. Who let these people in here? And they very quickly descended into criticism and scorn. What they thought came out in what they said, which affected how they related to the Muppets. We all need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that can only be done in Christ and in the community of the local church. Remember, Paul is writing this letter and chapter four is all about their relationships with one another in the church. And they need one another and they support one another. As I conclude, I want to challenge us to be the kind of Christians that are not Christians in name only, but Christians in the way that we live. Christians that reflect the truth, integrity, and righteousness of our Savior, because this is what he has called us to. He has called us away from our old self and our deceitful desires, and he's called us unto a new self, and he has challenged us to live in light of our identity in Christ that we are created, he says, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Many of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul and the work of Ligonier Ministries. Some of you found them because of your search for Reformed theology, and you thought, this guy makes a lot of sense, and I really appreciate the way he explains the scripture, and he's so helpful. But did you know that R.C. Sproul's ministry was not started simply to teach Reformed theology? His ministry really started and coalesced over teaching people the holiness of God. One of his first books is titled The Holiness of God, and I would commend you to buy it and read it and reread it. I think what's been lost in our current generation is a fear of God that leads to holiness. And Paul is saying here, we ought to live holy lives different from the world around us. And that starts with what we put into our minds. It next moves to what comes out in our attitudes and feelings. And then finally, it culminates in the decisions and actions that we make. So what areas of your life do you need to turn over to Christ this morning? Perhaps you need to turn to Christ from the futility of your thinking and say, I finally surrender. I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I want to trust you as my savior. Christ, forgive me. If you're a Christian, perhaps the question is, 
What in your life is holding you back from reflecting Christ's truth, integrity, and righteousness? What is that pet sin that you're holding on to that you need to let go of? What are the thoughts that you're thinking that undermine the gospel? And what are the attitudes and actions that God needs to change? I want to encourage you, put off the old self. Put on the new self and live in light of our identity in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this passage, we've really not concluded the passage because there's so much here for us to consider, both for this message, but also for the implications in our lives. God, every one of us, including myself, think wrong thoughts, and we have crooked hearts, and we stray into bad actions and behaviors. And God, I ask this morning again that you would forgive us of our futile thinking, that you would forgive us for succumbing to deceitful desires that never ultimately satisfy. And God, I pray that you would draw us anew to Jesus. God, if there's anything that's been said this morning that we need to repent of, I pray that you would bring those who don't believe you to a knowledge of you through repentance and faith. And God, if there are any believers here who have been harboring sins that undermine the very things they say that they don't want to do, I pray today that they would examine them honestly before you and be willing to confess them and forsake them and that they would bring glory to you by living according to your truth, according to your integrity, and according to your righteousness. God, these are hard things, things we cannot do alone, but we do under the authority of your word, by the power of your spirit, and in community with your people. And we ask for help on all three of those lines this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.